Welcome to another exciting edition of the Slightly Sideways Podcast, episode 14. I'm your host, Koenig, joined as always by my good friend and co-host, Corbin. Say hello to the people, Corbin. Hello, everyone. Hope you didn't miss us too much. We took a two-week break from you folks. We got a little busy in life on our end here, but we are back with a big episode for everyone. So thank you for tuning in for our 14th episode to date. As you know, on Slightly Sideways, we like to have a few drinks, some adult beverages to kind of set the mood. Over on my end here, I have one of my absolute favorites. It's a little bit different. I have what is called Krabby's Alcoholic Ginger Beer. Uh, It comes from Scotland. It's not the most common thing to find, but if you go to some kind of liquor store or what have you, you can find it. But really good stuff. Koenig, what do you have on your end? On my end, I'm going with a first-timer for our program, and this is coming out of Georgetown Brewing, and Corbin loves this because Georgetown Brewing Company out of Seattle, Washington. Oh, what a shocker. Yeah. it's I swear to God, like, you go to the stores up here, there's microbrews everywhere. All you find is local shit. It's crazy. But I'm going with the Rogers Pilsner in the matte silver can. Very cool Ooh. can. So hopefully it the Pilsner is It is pretty good. cool. It's a pretty cool looking can, for sure. (laughs) But we do have a huge episode for you tonight. We've got two weeks worth of sports to catch you folks up on. But before we get into the show tonight, if you haven't already, give us a follow on Twitter at Slightly Sideway. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes of the show, you can email us at slightlysidewayspod at gmail.com. Especially here coming up, we're about to hit a slow period for sports over the next few months. So if there's anything any particular topic that you want us to debate or discuss feel free to send us an email if you're on spotify give our show a follow at slightly sideways podcast so you never miss a new episode and for our youtube community you can find our show at slightly sideways podcast if you haven't already hit the red subscribe button so all of our new episodes go straight to your subscription inbox if you're enjoying the show give it a thumbs up it's absolutely free to subscribe and like the videos and it shows tremendous support for what we're doing so thank you as always for your continued support of the program on today's halloween edition of slightly sideways we have the wrap-up of the major league baseball season and world series we have an nfl recap over the last couple weeks what else do we have for the people tonight corbin We also have some college football, some upsets in the making across the country, shaking up the college football playoff scale. We also have Sheffield United. They have played two games since we last entertained you folks. And everybody's favorite section, The Unknown. This week's episode of The Unknown will be taken care of by Koenig. You'll want to stick around to see what that sick, sick mind has come up with for this week. Leading off... No pun intended. We are going to go right into the baseball playoffs. Since we last left off with you, the championship series for both leagues, as well as the World Series, have been completed. And we'll kind of bring you up to speed on what had happened, give you our opinions. We wanted to note on the championship series first, because there was some noteworthy material to go over 
in the National League Championship Series, we actually had a come-from-behind series win by the Los Angeles Dodgers. They were down three games to one to the Atlanta Braves, won three in a row to win that series to catapult them into the World Series. On the other end, we had almost a disaster. The Tampa Bay Rays had a three games to zero lead over the Houston Astros. The Astros came back and won three in a row to force a game seven. Luckily for everybody, because everybody hates the Astros, the Tampa Bay Rays were able to take care of game seven and win that series and also propel themselves into the World Series. But both those series going to seven games, Koenig, your impression, did the right teams get into the World Series this go around? Yeah, I mean, both teams in their respective leagues, the number one seeds, they've proven all year over the course of their 60-game schedule that they were the teams to beat. The Rays were a team that relied heavily on their pitching. They didn't quite have the offensive firepower that I think a team like the Dodgers had, but they got there with their pitching and with their bullpen, and they proved that, especially in Game 7 against the Astros. They were really able to shut them down. Randy Arozarena gave him an early lead in that seventh game, and they just gave the lead to Charlie Morton, and he just mowed the Astros down in that game. And, you know, the bullpen shut the door. The Astros made a late push at the end to try to get back into that game, but the bullpen for Tampa proved to be too much. And the Dodgers, I mean, we'll get more into this when we discuss the World Series, but what more can you say about the Dodgers? The pitching was there. The offensive firepower was there. They're a team that the second highest payroll in baseball. They went out, they spent the money, they got the players, and it showed. It absolutely showed. They were a team that was very balanced. They had games where they could beat you at the plate. They had games where they could beat you on the mound. And credit to both teams for getting as far as they did. And yeah, I mean, I I think both teams deserved to be in the World Series for sure. My take on it was... What a choke job by the Braves. You're up three games to one. Playing pretty good baseball, I must say. And to lose three straight games in a row, albeit I know it's different circumstances. You're not playing in front of your home crowd. You're playing in a neutral site with little to no fans. Texas, where the National League Championship Series was, allowed some fans. I get that, right? You don't have that momentum of uh, you know, the energy of the wherever you're playing. But... To lose three straight games in a row when you've got a three to one series lead, you had the Dodgers next near down and out. And credit to the Dodgers, they didn't roll over and die like the Dodgers of the past usually do. <laughs> usually the Dodgers steamroll in the regular season and they find a way to blow it in the postseason. They didn't do that this time. So credit to them. With the Rays, I felt like the Rays really limped into the World Series. And sure. it's, it's, we'll, we'll get to this when we get to the World Series coverage. I think what you saw in the World Series was the carryover from the Championship Series. Because the yeah. Dodgers came in red hot, and the Rays came in by the skin of their teeth. They just barely were able to hold off the Astros to get in. The Rays, with a 3-0 series lead, they lose three games in a row to the Astros. They pull it off, like Koenig mentioned, their pitching pretty much held serve in that Game 7 enough for them to win. They really struggled in scoring runs at the end of that championship series, which, again, we'll get to as far as the World Series coverage goes. Credit to both sides, though, to the Dodgers and the Rays. 
the Dodgers was kind of the expectation before the season started. They were one of the favorites to win the World Series. I think them and the Yankees were the top two betting favorites if you're a gambler out there. I don't know if the Rays were a true surprise. The Rays have been consistently good for quite a while now. They're not a team that you would bet on, but they're not a team that you would bet against, right? Like people don't and go bet against the Rays because they are a really good team. And full of surprises. I didn't even know who this Eros Arena guy was until these playoffs came around and the guy played out of his mind. Before the playoffs, I didn't know who this guy was. If you were to tell me, hey, who is Eros Arena and who does he play for? I don't even... Doesn't even sound like a real person, honestly. But congrats to the Dodgers. Congrats to the Rays. We get to the World Series. Koenig, what was the outcome of the World Series? So the Dodgers win the series against the Rays four games to two. And there was kind of a turning point in this series. We'll kind of go from where I think the series gets interesting. And for me, that is game four. And you have a situation where the Dodgers are up two games to one in the series, and they've got their closer out on the mound to try to close it out and make the series three games to one. And you got to give credit where it's due. Tampa's one of those teams that doesn't go away lightly, and this was no exception. You had Brett Phillips with a single to center field. Chris Taylor botches the fielding, and two runs come around to score in kind of a circus. The throw to the plate is kind of up line a little bit. The catcher can't block it. It gets by him, and the runner advances from third on the air. It was just a total circus play, but I thought for sure after that play happened, Tampa ties the series in game four at two games apiece, and I said that is the kind of play that flips the momentum in a series. Some freaky play like that where you win a game that probably you should not have won. And we've said this on other programs in the past. Baseball is a game that's so heavily influenced by momentum. And a play like that where you have a big celebration after the game, the players are feeling good about themselves. I'm sure the Dodgers are feeling really shitty about themselves because they really could have put their knife to their throat, if you will. But as it turns out, as the series went on, that was, I think, the wake-up call the Dodgers needed. They went out and took care of business in games five and six. Yeah, and going back to that play, as Koenig mentioned, Brett Phillips for the Rays, they acquired him before at the trade deadline from the Kansas City Royals. This is a guy who people know him as not a good hitter. This guy, is he's a good glove, he's a good teammate, but he is not a guy who's going to just go off on you offensively. You know, he gets a nice little slapper hit to right center field. Koenig mentions there's the bobble in center field and then a poor throw. The poor throw to the plate was what lost in the game because one run was going to score no matter what. It was the poor throw that allowed Eros Arena to score the game-winning run. If the throw would have been on target, Eros Arena would have been, well, he was in a pickle. He was in the middle of between third base and home plate. Oh, he so. fell down. <laughs> he literally oh, like yeah, yeah. tumbled <laughs> Yeah, he fell down like 20, 25 feet from the plate. Like yeah. he was a sitting duck. Like this guy, it would have been out. And I'm pretty sure there was, was there two outs at that point? I believe so. Yeah, so there was two outs. So if anything, that would have been the end of the inning and then it would have gone into extras. But yeah, the Dodgers essentially gave the Rays a free game. And if not for that, it would have been a five-game series. It would have been 4-1 Dodgers. And like Koenig mentioned, Normally, in a situation like that, like moments like that, like one that kind of comes to mind is I'm not going to tell you the year because I'm terrible with years, but it was when the St. Louis Cardinals were playing the Texas Rangers and David Freeze 
hit a triple to right field that went over Nelson Cruz's head. He probably had a chance to make a play on it and didn't. And then that extended the game. Freeze hits a walk-off home run in extra innings. And that series was 3-2 Texas. St. Louis comes back and wins that series. It kind of had that feel when the play happened. Like, oh, shit. Like, okay. Like, that was a huge break for the Rays. They're going to take this. They're going to run with it. Especially, like, a team for the Rays. Like, they need every little bit because they don't have this, like, beastly lineup like the Dodgers do, right? So they got to take everything that's coming to them. Right. Their pitching was all right. I want to say it was fantastic. It was good. We'll get to Blake Snell in Game 7 here in just a second because that's a topic in itself. But really what this series boiled down to, especially in Games 5 and 6, was just the Rays, they just were not able to hit with runners in scoring position. They could not get the timely hits. Not that the Dodgers were explosive on offense those last two games, but at least the Dodgers did enough to get the wins. I mean, the Rays were... They were on life support when runners were on base. Koenig, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I know we made mention of this when we were doing our preview and predictions for the entire playoffs. If you hadn't seen that show, go back and watch it or listen to it. But the Rays are a team that have lived and died by the home run all season. All season long. This has been a team that their offensive production primarily has come from the home run. When they needed to score, it was a home run. And you think about it even in the playoffs, whether they eliminated the Yankees, what was it? A Brasso home run. When they eliminated the Astros, what was it? Randy Arozarena and Mike Zanino, home run, home run. This is not a team that plays quote-unquote small ball. This is a team that lives on the home run. And they died by the home run. In this playoffs against the Astros, when they couldn't hit, they couldn't hit at all. When they weren't hitting home runs, they weren't hitting at all. You had how many people in that Rays lineup in the World Series who batted under 200? How many? Six? Outside of Kevin Kiermeyer and Randy Arozarena, was there anybody that hit over 200? And what's crazy is Kiermeyer is not known for a high batting average or getting lots of hits. So the fact that that guy is one of your top two hitters in the series is not a good sign. Exactly. And so my whole contention with the Rays, when they're a hot team and when they're all mashing the baseball, they're winning games. They're that team that won 40 games this year. They won two thirds of their games. When they're not hot, you see a team that got eliminated in six games by the Dodgers. Outside of the games that they won, and granted, one of the two games they won, some people say maybe they shouldn't have even won. It was such a freak play. Yeah. I mean, the Dodgers were dominant in that series. The pitching was fine. Like Corbin said, the pitching was fine, but the offense was nowhere to be found. And you're going up against the second highest payroll in Major League Baseball at over $105 million. So it's going to take more than just good pitching to get it done. It's going to take pitching and hitting And the Rays, like Corbin said, they just couldn't hit. They couldn't keep up with the superstars that the Dodgers had. Somebody who got the monkey off of their back in that series, I think, was Clayton Kershaw. This is a guy for the Dodgers that, that's his MO, right? He's fantastic in the regular season. This guy's won how many Cy Young Awards and is just a stud when the regular season's in play. And then the postseason hits and this guy's a dud, right? This guy gets lit up, he gets shelled, Dodgers get eliminated, and more or less everybody points a finger at Kershaw. Yes. Oh, how come he didn't perform better? Which maybe is justified, maybe is not. That's you know your opinion on what you want to think on that. But in this series, not that he pitched tremendous, but 
he pitched two games, had two wins with an ERA of 2.31. Not too shabby, yeah. especially when you know that you've got the offense behind you that the Dodgers have. You're pretty much going to win all the time with numbers like that. So some people hate the Dodgers. They hate Kershaw. I thought it was pretty cool to see him actually perform well for once because you can kind of tell he's kind of getting to the end of the road there. So kudos to Kershaw. Yeah. And Corbin talks about getting a huge monkey off your back. So let me give you some numbers to just show you how big this monkey was. Clayton Kershaw career, career regular season ERA over the course of his how many year career, Corbin? 12, 13 year career. Yeah, at least. This it seems guy, like he's been around for forever. Yeah, this guy's got a 2.43 ERA in the regular <sighs> season. That's incredible. Nuts. Incredible. That's nuts. Even for one season, that's a really, really good season. That's over the course of his career. That's insane. Yeah, very, very strong. Now you compare that to his postseason career ERA, 4.22. And it's not to say that 4.22 is a bad ERA by any stretch, but you're talking about a two-run-per-game disparity between your career numbers and how you pitch in the playoffs. And when you're talking about arguably one of the best pitchers of our generation, we weren't necessarily around to say we were part of the Nolan Ryan generation or... You know, I guess you could say we are alive for the Randy Johnson generation or maybe even the Kurt yeah. Schilling or Pedro Martinez generation. Clayton yeah. Kershaw. Your boy, your boy, Roger Clemens. Your boy, Roger Clemens, the <laughs> Rocket. You can talk about the fact that Clayton Kershaw is arguably the best modern-day pitcher in baseball. Since 2000 on, he's probably the best pitcher of our time. And so, like Corbin said, Kershaw needed this. He needed to show people and cement his legacy as one of the best pitchers in baseball. And that's what he's been every year for the, maybe the past 10 years or so. Granted, there's been a couple injuries here and there, some speed bumps along the way. But he has been a dominant pitcher in this league, and everyone always criticizes Kershaw saying, well, what you going to do in the postseason? Because he's been a disaster up until this point. So I'm not a fan of the Dodgers, but I... I'm a fan of baseball, and I'm understanding of the fact that I understand how good of a player and he is. So I'm glad to see that he got that off his back and he won a championship. I think he deserves it. I think he can finally put those demons to bed, and good for him. Yeah, and I'm not a Dodgers fan, and honestly, I hate L.A. for the most part, so I like to see their teams lose more often than not, with exception to the Angels, but I would kind of count them more Anaheim. but. Good for Kershaw. This is a guy that is well-respected around the league, has been a total workhorse for years and years and years for that organization. So cool to see him win. Another really big storyline in this World Series, especially in Game 6, was ya boy, Blake Snell, the starting pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays. This guy was rolling in a good way in his start. and. They must have told him before the game that he was on the shortest leash ever because he gave him a single in the sixth inning, which was his second hit of the entire night given up. Meanwhile, this guy is mowing down Dodgers left and right. The Dodgers, for the most part, can't touch this guy. The manager, Kevin Cash, comes out, gives him the hook. What do you know? Dodgers put up some runs, win the game. 
big controversy. Oh, did they make a mistake taking Snell out? Koenig, your thoughts. Was it a mistake to take Snell out after giving up his second single, not even an extra base hit, a single in the game? This is the biggest controversy that's coming out of the World Series. But I have a serious bone to pick with Kevin Cash. (laughs) And we'll give a little bit more information. Corbin touched on this a little bit, but Blake Snell was very dominant in that Game 6 start. He had struck out nine Dodgers through five innings of work. So he's basically averaging two strikeouts an inning. He had allowed one single going into the sixth inning. And I was telling Corbin during the game, I was like, this dude, we were texting back and forth. I was like, this dude is going nine innings. He was so dialed in. And when a pitcher's dialed in, you can feel it, right? Like you can know, like they're just unconscious. They just are throwing out of their mind. He looked incredible. The breaking pitch was unhittable. He was changing speeds effectively. Dodgers were striking out left, right, and center. And then Kevin Cash decided he wanted to do what managers oftentimes do in the playoffs, and he wanted to overmanage the baseball game. Fast forward into the sixth inning. Austin Barnes collects a one-out single in the sixth, and Kevin Cash had seen enough of his young ace. Blake Snell goes five and a third innings. He gives up the two singles, like Corbin said, nine strikeouts, and he gives way to Nick Anderson. Sure as shit, the wheels immediately fall off. Los Angeles scores runs, they get back into the game, they take the lead. And of course, that's all she wrote. And my whole question is why? Why? I feel like managers become so bogged down with the analytics, right? The overanalyzing everything and the numbers and the numbers. And that makes managers make these stupid fucking decisions. And this is what this was. This is a stupid fucking decision. Why is it that the numbers and the analytics of baseball outweigh what any person could see with their own eyeballs? Anybody, even a casual baseball fan, could see that Blake Snell was locked in. He was on another planet. They're like, no one was going to touch him in this game. He was dominating. This is his last start of the season. Blake Snell, 27 years old. He has a full five days of rest going into this game. He has the entire offseason to rest if his arm falls off. (laughs) You pull this kid after giving up his second single of the game in an elimination game? These are the types of decisions that get managers fired. Not in Tampa Bay. (laughs) Yeah, clearly. Be not surprised if you see either Blake Snell pitching somewhere else next year or if this is truly the end for Kevin Cash. I honestly think Blake Snell will be pitching somewhere else. I really don't see how you can pair these two up together. You hear Blake Snell's comments after the game, clearly disappointed. He was pissed off, dude. And it was a stupid decision. It was unnecessary. It was over-analytical. It was stupid. It was foolish. And it played a huge role in ending the Rays' season. We're playing hypotheticals, right? Who knows what would happen if Snell stayed in the game? We'll never know. But man, that is, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback or, you know, whatever the translation of baseball is in that analogy. But uh, it's, I just don't see it. I don't see it, dude. The only thing that I can think of that makes any kind of sense is before the game, they had a strategy. And maybe they went to Snell and said, you know what? We want you to give us five innings. And then anything after that, if you give up a base runner, whether you're pitching well, pitching poorly, we're going to take you out. That's the only thing I can think of. But why? That makes, 
But like you said, the analytics, you know, these guys, they have their bullpen for the most part was really good for Tampa throughout the entire postseason, the regular season. So they probably had their matchups in their mind. Okay, you know, we can bring this guy in for the the sixth, this guy for the seventh, this guy for the eighth. Who knows, right? Like these guys have all these game plans and they've got their reasons, right? But that's all well and good. But I feel like as a good manager, you need to read the situation, right? You can have a game plan, but you know what? When you have a guy who's out there on fire, guess what? Game plan goes out the window. Or you know what? We're going to change the game plan a little bit, right? He had a one-run lead. Now, again, not a lot. So I understand the short leash, if you will. But... The guy was rolling, and the second hit that he gave up on, he did say I threw a slider that hung a little bit that he that he hit. It wasn't like the guy blasted it; like he got enough of it to get on base, obviously. But even on his bad pitch, they were barely making enough contact to get on base. I mean, at least give the guy—I would say—give him a run. Like until he gives up a run, you don't take him out of the game. Just respect for your player. You know, this guy besides Charlie Morton. I mean, he more or less is the face of the Rays, I would say. I mean, if you ask most baseball fans, hey, who's the biggest player on the Rays? I mean, they might say Eros Arena now because he went crazy during the playoffs, but more of them will say Blake Snell. And I think what you said is interesting because what I like about Blake Snell is he's not going to just say the cookie cutter answers like, Oh, well, you know, the manager made the decision. I, I don't have any, he was pissed. Right. And he yeah. was saying, yeah, I'm upset. And I don't know why he took me out. I love that. That's the kind of guy that I want pitching for me. And I could definitely see him positioning himself to get out of Tampa to say, you know what? Like you guys don't believe in me. Clearly here I am giving the best pitching performance of the world series so far. You take me out. Like you mentioned, it's very easy. Just 2020, you know, hindsight's always 2020. It's very easy to look back now and say, oh, that was a huge mistake because they lost. But even in the moment, I was following Twitter as he was getting taken out before the Dodgers had yeah. mounted their comeback, scored runs, taken the lead. People were tweeting, what the hell is going on? You know, what's this? This is crazy. And <laughs> definitely cost him the World Series. That's for sure. I can't imagine. If I was a manager, there's no way I have more confidence in my bullpen than I do with Snell with the way that he's pitching in that game right then and there. I would have given him at least one run. And again, the only thing I can think of is they had a plan ahead of time and (laughs) they stuck to it, which (laughs) obviously it didn't pan out for them. Right. So, you know, the Dodgers, they're the World Series champion. And given the parameters of the season... There are a few people that spoke out on the social media sphere right after the Dodgers won. Given everything that's happened this season, given the shortened season, given the no fans, Corbin, do you consider the Dodgers a true World Series champion? Yes, because I thought before the season started, I did think that they were one of the best teams in baseball, top two. So if it would have been some team like the Marlins that had somehow squeaked into the playoffs because they had this expanded playoff format, and they miraculously squirked through the playoffs and won the World Series, then I would have maybe more of an issue with it. But the Dodgers were clearly the best team in the National League. And on paper, and obviously after they played the Rays, they were better than the Rays were. And I thought the Rays were a good team. And the Rays, in a regular season, they would have not been uncommon for the Rays to make the playoffs. It would have been not uncommon for the Rays to win that division. 
So I think how it shaped up as far as the matchups in the World Series, I will give credit to the Dodgers. I mean, hell, they had to play an extra playoff series because of the expanded teams. They won the best of five DS. They won the best of seven CS. And then they won the best of seven World Series. That's what you would have to do in any regular year. So, yes, I would say that how it shaped up, the better teams were there. And because of that, I think it's fair to say that they are the true World Series champions. Yeah, for me, I guess it just kind of depends on who you ask. I feel like most old-timer baseball fans consider a real season to be 162 games. So the winner of a World Series during a quote-unquote normal season is a team that can manage that extensive schedule and ride the ups and downs of the season and manage their injuries and everything like that. It's kind of like a marathon being able to survive over the course of a long period of time. And I feel like a lot of people out there a lot of maybe originalists with baseball, the purists, if you will, are a little less impressed given the 60-game gimmicky season. But you have to consider that all of the teams in the league were up against the same set of circumstances. Every team was having to manage playing in the empty stadiums. Every team was having to manage playing a lighter schedule where each game was more meaningful than in seasons past. Every team had to manage and navigate their way through playing in a pandemic climate. So I do think the Dodgers deserve their title. I don't think it's necessarily a question of deserving. I think some people who put an asterisk next to their championship aren't necessarily putting it as a reflection of the Dodgers, but more so a reflection of the season that this whole thing transpired in. And I understand that, but at the end of the day, the Dodgers were 43-17. and 17. They won 72% of the games that they played in the regular season. And you can argue with that extra playoff series thrown in a three-game series. In my mind, that's kind of fucked because, you know, it's baseball. You could have two bad games and then, boom, you're done, right? So the room for error is next to nothing. And they took care of business with the 60-game season. They took care of business in the postseason. So I understand these baseball purists. I will say that the expanded playoffs and all the gimmicky shit that they did during the season, the, oh, we're going to have seven-inning doubleheader games. Like, what? Like, it was just like Little League, right? Playing seven-inning games. And, oh, and if we get to extra innings, we're going to put a runner on second base. And, you know, we're going to start the inning with the runner on second. It was just like a lot of like, damn, this is like shit that you would see in Little League, right? Like, okay, like, you know, we don't want the kids playing too long. Like, let's, you know, shorten these games up. Like, let's create these results. And I'll say this, the three minimum batter for pitchers, that shit needs to go for the postseason. You want to do that in the regular season? That's fine, okay? But you know what? The postseason matters, and that's where managers really make their money is in the postseason. And even if it's just to bring in a guy to face one batter and then that's it, it's a chess game, like managing in the playoffs, and every decision matters. So I think they need to scrap that shit for the postseason. If you want to keep it for the regular season, fine. But I don't like it in the postseason. I thought that was, it just didn't sit right with me. Yeah, fair enough. And that's really what we have for this Major League Baseball season. We will close with our final thoughts about baseball now that the baseball season is over. Corbin, what are your thoughts now that the season has ended officially? Um, it was a roller coaster for sure. <laughs> the whole season was just filled with speed bumps and delayed games and pushback games and 
shortened double headers. And I hope that we don't have to see something like this again. You never know. I mean, who knows what the future is going to entail. It was interesting. I'm always going to remember it. There's never going to be a time where I forget this. And one day I'll tell my kids about this and they'll be like, what the hell? You know, (laughs) they they actually did that. Yeah. I do feel bad for the Dodgers because there are going to be people out there who are going to discredit them, you know, saying, oh, you know, well, yeah, you won a World Series, but it was a shortened season and this and that and blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of unfortunate, especially for players like Kershaw. There's always going to be those naysayers and those haters that say that they didn't truly win a real season, but it was such a up and down, especially with the whole virus situation and really weird umpire situations and brawls on the field that were leading <laughs> to suspensions. And I'm okay that the season's over. I normally am a big, big baseball fan. This season was so wacky that I'm still kind of trying to digest it even <laughs> after the season's over. Yeah. Again, I hope that we don't really have to experience anything like this again, but, um, Hell, I'll remember it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for me, I was never really interested in this baseball season from the outset. I will say that I do prefer the shortened season. By the end of a standard 162-game baseball season, I really could care less what happens because I'm so burned out, right? Like, you have baseball every single day from March through October, and every single day there's like 15 games on television. I think this is what... It's kind of like steered me more towards hockey as I got older. What's great about hockey in an 82-game season is there's maybe a couple games on here and there. There's some days during the week where there are no games and your team doesn't play every night. And so it still feels interesting. The season is long in terms of days, but it doesn't feel long because the games are spaced out evenly to kind of let the season breathe a little bit. Yeah. You do have instances where you have like back to backs, you know, but it's not common. Right. And so I do like aspects of the season. I do hope that Major League Baseball considers a shortened season. I don't think 60 games is where you want to be, but I think a hundred game season would be fine. I think we could work with a hundred to 120 game season. I think the sweet spot is 120 games, because if you think about it, you go and you not not this season, of course, because they only played 60. But if you go look back on past standings and as far as where teams lied and everything for the most part there's some exceptions because sometimes there's some really shitty teams that just cannot seem to win anything (laughs) but for the most part every team is going to win 60 games and every team is going to lose 60 games so they pretty much play this entire season to determine a window of 42 games you know the remaining to get to the 162 so i say fuck it cut out those 40 games Add in some breaks in the season, like Koenig said, because it's grueling. Sometimes these teams are playing 9 to 12 games in a row. They're playing a series Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then flying to a different city, then playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then flying to a different city, then playing Monday, Tuesday. It's just like, (laughs) fuck. It's crazy, dude. And it's exhausting. I get people texting me all the time. Oh, who are the Mets playing today? I'm like, fuck, dude. I got it. I don't know, man. They're, it's all over the place. Like, they play a different team every three days. I got, yeah. I, you know, I don't have that shit memorized. Right. So, I think one twenty is the perfect amount. I'd be cool with that. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful that they look at that. I'm hopeful that they understand that this kind of adds to the intrigue of the game. Because for the most part, like you might have a few division races that come down to the last week of the season. But honestly, 
I feel like we could still have that same level of intrigue. And I'm all about making each individual game meaningful. In baseball especially, you have situations where even teams that win the World Series will have stretches where they lose 8, 9, 10, 11 games in a row. And eh, no, no big deal, because each game is like whatever. And it makes baseball, in my eyes that much more meaningless because each game is like yeah if we win we win if not you know who, who fucking cares we got 161 more of these things yeah you're right you see these teams that eventually make the playoffs that will have like an eight nine game losing streak and it's like how can you be considered a good team if you're losing eight or nine in a row it's mind-boggling so we will close the book for the major league baseball season i definitely won't be missing this season like corbin said with all of the hoopla that happened hoopla but uh hopefully we can have some fans in attendance for 2021 we'll see i think a lot of that might stem from what may or may not happen here in a couple days but we won't go and touch that but we will go into the national football league so we got a couple weeks worth of football news to catch you folks up on we have now only one undefeated team remaining the pittsburgh steelers of all teams who would have guessed the Pittsburgh Steelers would be the last remaining undefeated? Not me. <laughs> As uh, the Seattle Seahawks and the Tennessee Titans drop games in week seven. So Corbin, as Pittsburgh is the current only unbeaten team in the league, are they the best team in football? No. And I'm very confident in that answer. They are a good team. I mean, you don't go 6-0 and when you're not a good team. Let's get real. I think the Kansas City Chiefs are a better team than they are. I think on a good day for the Baltimore Ravens, they are a better team than the Steelers are. And they still have to play each other. So Baltimore hasn't played Pittsburgh yet. So there's two games there that will tell a lot more about the Steelers. And I think there's teams that are even better in the NFC. So not even just sticking with a conference. I think the Seattle Seahawks, even though they lost to the Cardinals last week, I still think that they're a better team than the Steelers are. I'm not trying to discredit the Steelers, but there's just, in my mind, there's better options out there right now. Koenig, what do you think? Yeah, it's hard to bet against the only freestanding undefeated team in the league, right? But I would exercise just a bit of caution in how we choose to evaluate the Steelers. So I like to get a little bit more in-depth into what do I think about it. And here's my real deep dive on what the Steelers have done so far this year. Week one... They beat the 1-6 New York football giants. Ugh. Week 2, they beat the 2-4 Drew Locke-led Denver Broncos. Ugh. Week 3, they beat the 1-6 DeAndre Hopkins-less Texans. <laughs> week 5, after their bye week, they beat the 2-4-1 Philadelphia Eagles. None of these teams are even close to winning records, folks. None of them. Not even close to 500. <laughs> oh, and then to their credit, they did beat the Browns. They did beat the Titans in week six and seven. We'll give them a round of applause that they won you, a couple good games. You could argue, though, that the Browns, the Browns are five and two right now, but they they're the worst five and two team in the league, in my opinion. That's another team that I think is more of a pretender than a contender. Yeah, that's very fair. But like Corbin said, they haven't played Baltimore at all. They have two games up against Baltimore, one of which is this Sunday. That's going to be some interesting television. So I'll be interested to see what comes of that game. I think that's the true benchmark for the Steelers so far. And some people might say 
Yeah, they beat the Titans. The Titans almost came back and won that game last weekend. If not for your boy Gustowski missing yeah. a very makeable kick, they uh, not that they would have won, but they would have had a chance. They would have tied it, and we would have most likely seen an overtime. Absolutely. And so the Steelers, you have to give them credit. It's not easy to win in the National Football League any given Sunday, right? That's what they say. But they haven't been truly tested. I think the test against the Ravens is a really big test. You look at the schedule, though. The schedule is very interesting. You look at the Steelers' schedule because they get to play the NFC East this year. That's who the AFC North is playing this year under their out-of-conference, quote-unquote. So they get to play the Cowboys, the Washington football team, the Eagles, <laughs> team. the Giants. It's like you get to play four games against the worst division in football, so congratulations. <laughs> you know, whereas I think the AFC East has to play the NFC West this year. So yeah, that sucks. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens against the Ravens, but I do think there are better options out there, and maybe we'll discuss that here shortly. I did want to mention something in the AFC to Koenig. Ugh. My boy. I think this is it. I think this is the beginning of the end. The Patriots right now just they're in the car, the car is on, but there's nobody in the driver's seat, and the lights are off. This is a running car, but it's not going anywhere. This team is 2-4. and four. They've lost three in a row. They haven't scored more than 12 points in any of the last three games. I am predicting that this is it for the Patriots. This is the end of their dynasty, the end of their dominance. That's all she wrote. Koenig, do you agree or disagree? I'm going to try to be... <laughs> As optimistic as possible. <laughs> and I will say this real quick before you go. I'm sorry. I know I asked you for your opinion, but I did say in earlier episodes that I thought the Patriots would struggle initially, maybe go two and two, three and three, and then get it together. They're not too far off from being three and three. They're two and four, but they've looked so bad recently that yeah. I'm going to, I'm taking back that statement. I no longer believe that they're uh, better than the jets, but man, they are not looking good. Yeah, I think I had a stat that I posted to Twitter on our Slightly Sideway Twitter. If you're not following us on there, follow us at Slightly Sideway. The Patriots, for the third consecutive week in a row, scored only three points at halftime. Three fucking points. That's awful. This is this. A Bill Bill Belichick coach team. A Josh McDaniels offensive coordinator-led team that is supposedly this offensive mastermind. And... Real quickly, before I go into my opinion on the Patriots, my team, if there's any discussion about who made who better, was Belichick made Brady better? Was Brady make Belichick better? I think we can put that to fucking bed. I don't agree with that, but I respect what you're saying. Okay. The Patriots are having a forgettable season, let's be honest. They're not having a Patriots standard type season. We're two and four... We've had losing seasons before, back when Drew Bledsoe was the quarterback. So let's not pretend that we don't know what it's like to lose, because we do. <laughs> but It's been a long time, though. It's been, it's, been, it's been 20 years. You know, it's been 20 years since we've had to deal with this. But I will say this. Okay? I'm going to look at this as optimistically as possible, and some people are like, oh, Koenig, you're looking at this with Patriots-tinted glasses. <laughs> well, yeah. He, he does have it. Patriots glasses on. I have the microphone, so you can fucking deal with it. <laughs> so 
The Patriots do lead the league with eight players who have opted out of the season because of the coronavirus. Most notably, I would say you have offensive tackle Marcus Cannon. You've got starting linebacker Dante Hightower. And you have starting strong safety Patrick Chung. Three big pieces. Really good Good players. players. Good players. Good players. And amongst those other less notable names that, you know, don't really play as often. So my huge concern going into the season, especially after a season like last season, can the boogeyman defense have a repeat performance from last season, especially with no Hightower, who's a huge piece of our defense? I thought for sure the defense was going to struggle. But my concerns this year more so point to the offensive side of the football. Like I said, three points, three consecutive weeks at halftime. That's not going to cut it. The Patriots have a fairly unproven and inexperienced receiving core. And that's, of course, led by Julian Edelman. However, we do have a report coming out of New England. Mike Reese, an ESPN writer for the Patriots, has reported that Edelman will be out for, quote, some time after a knee procedure, end quote. So this only weakens a Patriots receiving core that honestly has been unsuccessful in route running has been unsuccessful in getting separation from corners from linebackers whatever i do really think this is the beginning of the end in new england i did preface this with i think okay we have some guys that are sitting out let's not look too deeply into this we're not even halfway through the year but man i will give credit to cam newton the guy is very self-critical he's understanding of the situation He says, dude, you have got to play better. You've got to play better, or this is going to be Jarrett Stidham's show really quick. He even admitted he wasn't even sure if he's going to start this next game. So that's never a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, and this is going to sound like me as like a spoiled Patriot fan. Don't get me wrong. We had our run. I have absolutely nothing to complain about. I have nothing to fucking complain about. You know, Let's face it. You could go the rest of your life and the Patriots would not win and, and you should still be satisfied. <laughs> 1,000%. But if you're talking about the reign of 11 consecutive AFC East titles, that's very much hanging in the balance. I think that will be the end this year. I, I do not think we'll win the division this year. I don't. Fortunate for you and me as well, we were able to see the Patriots play a couple years back You got to see Brady play in Gillette Stadium, which is obviously never going to happen again unless he's playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So that was awesome. I think the glory days are over in New England as a Jets. I mean, I have the Jets are going to be terrible for forever. So I, I, you know, I just got (laughs) to I just got to be maniacal and, you know, oh, the Patriots are bad. Ha ha ha. Even though we suck worse. But, you know, (laughs) as a Jets fan, it's nice to see. I will have to say it's nice to see. Yeah, but. You had to get that jab into you here real quick. One other news from the AFC that I think is worth noting, and we'll kind of jump into the NFC for just a little bit, is the Miami Dolphins. They are 3-3. Three and three. They're in the hunt for the playoffs as far as like the division in the AFC East. They're actually the only team in the AFC East right now that has a positive point differential, if you can believe that. Wow. The Dolphins, they're 3-3, three and three, but their point differential is plus 47. Jesus. Pretty remarkable. Wow. And so here's a team that's, you know, they're not tearing the world up, but they're playing decent enough to have a chance at the postseason. Ryan Fitzpatrick over the last couple games has thrown four touchdowns, two interceptions. Not bad. That's kind of what you expect with Fitzpatrick is he's either going to light it up or he's going to get torn up. And right now he's slinging it. They decide we have our bye week, which was last week. You know what? 
We're going to make the switch to Tua Tunga-Vailoa. Their number five overall pick coming out of Alabama. Who, the savior of the Dolphins. Who knows? They say, you know what? We're going to go with Tua. He's going to be our guy going forward. He's making his first start this Sunday. We'll see how that shapes up. Koenig, does this move make sense, especially since the Dolphins are playing decent and Fitzpatrick was playing well? Yeah, the context is relevant. I thought it was definitely weird timing to make this change. I wouldn't say that Ryan Fitzpatrick was having a phenomenal season by any stretch, but no. you can't argue the fact that the guy was winning games. Fuck, he's winning more games than the Patriots are winning, I'll tell that. They found themselves currently in second place in the AFC East, breathing down Buffalo's neck as Buffalo starts to lose games and return to form. And Brian Flores, head coach of the Dolphins, decides to pull the plug and make the change for Tua, who is not proven at all. No, two completions against the Jets in yeah. a blowout win. And we see this all the time in the NFL, these remarkable college players who aren't proven in the NFL, and they get their shot, and they flame out. So you have a situation where the Patriots have been dominating the AFC East for the last two decades. And now you have a realistic chance of competing to win the AFC East, potentially, as the Dolphins. You're not out of it. You're two games out of first place or a game and a half out of first place. And you make the switch to Tua. Maybe an amazing decision. Maybe a disastrous decision. We just don't know. We just don't know how that's going to play out. I do think that Ryan Fitzpatrick will be on the move now that this transition has taken place. Especially Dallas. If Dallas. <laughs> yes, especially if Tua plays well. My gut would be exactly what Corbin said for the Cowboys. Do you have Dak Prescott season over? You have Andy Dalton, who, let's throw up a photo of this on our YouTube video. Andy Dalton gets absolutely annihilated by the Washington football team. He's currently in concussion protocol, so his status for this weekend is up in the air. So what are the Cowboys going to do if he can't go? They are actually going to play rookie quarterback Ben DiNucci out of FCS James Madison. Are you fucking oh kidding God. me? Wow. No. And what's even more insane is the Cowboys are 2-5 and five and are a half game because the Eagles had a tie. They're a half game yes. from the division lead. Yes. Which is just unfucking believable It's... If I'm Jerry Jones, I would have called the Dolphins stat and said, what do you want for Fitzpatrick? Like, I'm not wasting any time. Yes. He's a veteran. He's played on fucking 17 million different teams, it seems like. The guy's played <laughs> for almost half the teams in the league. I think he's, like, the only quarterback ever to throw a touchdown pass for, like, eight or nine different teams, which is insane. I would have called up Miami and said, all right, Clearly, you're going with Tua. That's fine and dandy. Good luck with that. What do we need to give you for Fitzpatrick? Like, let's make this shit happen, right? Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what's going on. Well, I... And real quick, here we are on Friday night, and nothing has transpired. <laughs> so it seems more and more likely that the Cowboys will be going with Ben DiNucci. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's like Corbin said, you are literally a half game out of first place in your terrible fucking division. Why not roll the dice? Not even a dice roll, really. I, I think Ryan Fitzpatrick is about as consistent as you can get out of the position. Yeah. He's not going to light up the scoreboard. He's a game manager. He's going to hand the ball off to Zeke 20, 30 times a game. He's going to make short passes, make smart plays, smart reads. He's a smart player. And just really quickly, 
heart goes out to Ryan Fitzpatrick. This guy wears his heart on his sleeve. He was interviewed by several media outlets in the days following the decision to switch to Tua. And this guy is heartbroken. Like, legitimately heartbroken. Like, you would think this guy's dog died. He's so upset. And he's just like, man, you know, I thought this was my team. I thought this was my year. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And I get, yeah, I get supplanted by this Tua guy. Yeah, he's saying... I mean, obviously, everybody knew eventually Tua was going to take over. So that's not a shock to anybody. Right. But... Like you mentioned, Fitzpatrick was saying, I was playing well, the team was performing well, we're trending up, we're moving in the right direction, and then boom, like, hey, guess what? You're not the starter anymore. Like, man, dude, that's cold-blooded. Yeah. If I'm the Dolphins, if I'm Flores, the head coach, I at least wait until we're out of the playoffs or we're trending away from the playoffs, and then you say, okay, you know what, Tua, especially Tua, who has injury history from yes. Alabama. yes. Okay, Tua, like, we're going to just take it slow with you, right? Like, we, you know, especially if we're going to be out of it, like, let's give you some time to get acclimated to the offense. And apparently not, man. Apparently Miami is chomping at the bit. I don't know if it's the owner saying to the coach, you know what, fuck it. You're going to play Tua because I said so. So that's all I got to say on that AFC topic there. Yeah. So we will transition real quickly into the NFC. And our lead story for the NFC this week is the Seahawks. The Seattle Seahawks dropping their first game of the season to all teams to the Arizona Cardinals. A 5-2 uh, and two Arizona Cardinals, which yeah. is bizarre. So going into that game, I don't think I was necessarily surprised that the Seahawks lost to the Cardinals. What I was surprised by is how the Seahawks lost the game. With 6.44 left in the game, the Seahawks convert a 4th and 2 for a touchdown to take a 10-point lead. And I'm thinking, this game's over, right? Seahawks have always had a strong defense. I thought, there is no fucking way this defense lets the Cardinals back into the game. But sure as shit, the Cardinals found a way late in that game. The Cardinals made a, a few really nice plays to work their way back into the game. They had an interception late, and even then... You have Zane Gonzalez, who missed the game-winning field goal in overtime. And I'm thinking, like, you cannot give Russell Wilson <laughs> extra chances to beat your ass. Especially in overtime. Yes. They got the ball back from Seattle. Yes. And then gave it right back. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, like, you give it to Russ once and he doesn't convert. And now you're giving him an extra chance because you can't make a field goal. I thought for sure. I was like, okay, here we go. We've seen this story before. But to the Cardinals' credit, once again, another big play. Isaiah Simmons, linebacker for the Cardinals, picks off Russell Wilson, gives the Cardinals the ball at midfield, and bing, bang, boom. Then Gonzalez doesn't miss this time, and the Cardinals survive Monday Night Football with a three-point victory. Corbin, what are your thoughts? A, on the Seahawks, B, on the Cardinals. It was not Russell Wilson's best game. He threw three interceptions, which is very uncharacteristic of russell wilson all throughout that game you just kind of have this feeling like okay like the seahawks aren't going to blow them out but they're going to win by 10 points you know they'll win by a couple scores and credit to the cardinals they just kind of never went away russ did have some really nice passes in that game some dimes he dropped in for some touchdown passes but yeah he's just not the greatest game for russ and I don't know. It's it was a weird game because the Cardinals just stuck around. They stuck around. They stuck around. And credit to the Cardinals defense, which hasn't really been exceptional this year. They made plays when they had to. 
like Koenig mentioned, the final turnover, Isaiah Simmons intercepting Russell Wilson in that overtime, he was their first round pick from last year, I believe number seven overall. And this is a guy coming out of Clemson who was supposed to be like this hybrid defensive player. He's so fast, he can cover receivers. He's so big that you can play him in the middle and you can rush him off the edge, like this do-it-all defensive player. And he's actually been terrible for the Cardinals. That game against Seattle, that play where he had the interception, that was his sixth play of the game. Six, as in one, two, three, four, five, six. So (laughs) That's crazy. Here's a guy who's a number one overall pick. The Cardinals are all slap happy that this guy is this defensive phenomenon. They can do so much with him, scheme so much with him. And he's been terrible, especially in the NFL. You either have a position or you don't. And this guy came in. And they thought, oh, we can mold him to do all these different things. Like, no, he can't really do anything really, really well. He can do some things okay, but to kind of bring that up, right? So there's this guy who's been underperforming the entire season, has this big play. Who knows? Maybe he gets it going from there. But, you know, for Russ to throw an interception to that guy, it's like, ooh, not, not so great. But I feel for Zane Gonzalez, Arizona State kicker, yeah, boy. Yeah, he misses the first one in overtime, which you thought that was it, right? Like the ball is going back to the Seahawks. All they need is a field goal. This game's over. Cardinals miraculously get the ball back. Zane nails the game winner. I still think the Seahawks are a better team than the Cardinals are. I think that game was kind of fluky. Very back and forth in the last five minutes of that game and into overtime. I think when they go back to Seattle, I think Seattle is going to kind of stomp them. But interesting. Definitely the most exciting game over the last couple weeks, in my opinion. So what is it about the Seahawks playing on primetime football where it like always comes down to the final play of the game? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. There's like, always some kind of controversy, right? Yeah. You, had, like, the, it's you just... had the Patriots in week two and Cam got stuffed on the goal line and Seattle survived. And then you had this game. You could even go back a few years and you could talk about the fail Mary against the Packers on primetime football. Yeah. It's like, the, it's the, always the, the replacement refs. <laughs> yeah. It's always something with the Seahawks. It's crazy. But I I will say this about the Cardinals just really quick. Corbin, I know you weren't as high on the Cardinals going into this season as maybe I was. I wasn't super high on the Cardinals either. I still think the jury's out on the Cardinals. I know they're 5-2, but I still have reservations. That's fair. And I think I might have had them at 9-7 on our prediction. I'd have to look at it. You did. You did. I think we had them slightly below that at maybe like, I don't know, 8-8 or 7-9, one Uh, of those. I think I said like 6-10, but you know what? (laughs) I've been pretty impressed with Kyler Murray. You know, he's going into his second season and he's been a phenomenal player for the Cardinals. Obviously, DeAndre Hopkins, a huge addition to that team. He's really kind of added that dynamic. He's been a player that has been able to stretch the field for the Cardinals a little bit. And that kind of opens some spaces up for Kyler to be athletic and make some plays with his legs. Would I say the Cardinals are a contender? No, I don't think so. I think they have a Not, very legitimate opportunity to make the playoffs, though. So yeah, it's it's going to be they, tough because of the NFC West, right? They've got tough games on their schedule, but I think they do have a good chance to make the playoffs. Yeah, they can definitely snag a wild card spot. But as far as teams like Seattle, Green Bay, Tampa Bay, I think those teams are better, even though they just beat Seattle. I think Seattle is a better team. But that kind of transitions into the next point here is... There's one team in the NFC right now that's, it looks like they're starting to get it rolling, and Koenig is loving it. Yes, sir. Yeah, boy. 
Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers seem to be getting it together. They are starting to get some motion here. They're five and two. They're in first in the NFC South. I think they're clearly better than the Saints at this point. I know the yes. Saints beat them earlier in the season, but is Tampa Bay the team to beat? Now, keep in mind, Tampa Bay steamrolled Green Bay a couple weeks ago, which is arguably another prime team in the NFC. Koenig, is this Tampa Bay's conference to lose? I'll give you the tagline before I give you the joke. Oh, Koenig, you're just saying that because you're a Tom Brady fanboy, man. Okay, let's put the pieces <laughs> together, okay? Tampa Bay is already starting to look very good. They go out, they sign Antonio Brown to a one-year deal. And this Which is could be, it could be disastrous, though. That it guy could, is toxic as fuck. It could, it could be. It could not work out. I mean, it didn't work out in New England either. And that was a situation where Belichick kind of has that shit under control. So who knows how Bruce Arians is going to handle that. But this is coming off of the heels of Tom Brady winning NFC Offensive Player of the Month for October. He throws for over 1,100 yards and 13 total touchdowns. You add Antonio Brown to the mix, who knows what that does, right? When you're throwing some stuff into the cauldron and you throw a little bit of poison in there and it could go all up in smoke before our very eyes. The Halloween reference for you. <laughs> what impresses me the most about the Bucks this season is actually... Not Tom Brady, but the defense. Tampa, believe it or not, this shocked the hell out of me, but believe it or not, Tampa is currently recognized as the number one ranked defense in NFL right now. And as the Bucks continue to find their identity on offense, you have Tom Brady who's continually improving as he learns that system and as he learns, picks up his chemistry with his players and whatnot. Gronk is starting to get more involved in the scheme, which is, I think, terrifying for every other team in the league. You add that good, solid core of an offense to a very good defense, I think they're the team to beat. I think they're the team to beat. Oh, Kenny, you just think that because you're a Tom Brady fanboy, man. Yeah, I think that there is something there. I do think that defense is relevant in the NFL. And what I will say about it is this. The Green Bay Packers, right? The Green Bay Packers went into Tampa Bay. They went into Raymond James Stadium, averaging 38 points a game, the Packers did. And we were talking about this on previous episodes. Oh, the Green Bay Packers are unstoppable. Oh, the Green Bay Packers are going to score 40 points a game. No. The Green Bay Packers got shut down in that game against Tampa Bay a couple weeks ago. 38 to 10, I believe, was the final score. It was over early. It was yes. over early too. There wasn't. Very. It wasn't like Tampa Bay pulled away late to pad that score. No, it was. That game was. That was yeah. It was. It was not good. It was toast. <laughs> and I don't think we should necessarily make generalizations about one game, but I no. think it's fair to no. say through seven weeks of the season, what you have is the Bucks who have the best defense in the league, an offense that has gradually improved week after week after week. You add Antonio Brown, who knows what is going to make of that situation. If anything with Antonio Brown, he's making like, I think his contract is for like $1 million base with the incentive. Or, yeah, just with incentive for minimum. like one and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So if anything, the guy comes in, causes trouble, just get rid of him, right? Cut his ass. You know, it's not like you owe this guy a ton of money. So and that might actually be incentive for him to behave, right? Like, shit, dude, how many chances can I get, right? Like, I need to 
I'm on a league minimum $1 million contract with the Bucks. Like, I need to get my shit straight. Yeah. And I know that Corbin mentioned this in our preview show a few weeks ago. He said, Brady doesn't have to prove shit. Brady's proven enough already. But I think that this is meaningful, right? And I'm not just saying this because I've been a lifelong Tom Brady fan. Everybody, everybody said, oh, Tom Brady's a system quarterback. Oh, Tom Brady wins because he's in a Josh McDaniel system. Oh, he wins because he's got Bill Belichick. What do you have to say now? I mean, his offense is clearly better in Tampa Bay than it is in New England, right? And Bruce Arians is a very, very good offensive-minded coach. He was very, very good in Arizona. And then he just all of a sudden retired, which people in Arizona thought was really weird. I think he had some kind of biff with the owner, honestly, because a year later he was Tampa's coach. But I think you need to consider that as well. It's relevant for sure. And I think, but, he's, but I think but it's he's, also he's played well, though. Yeah, it's it's fair to say. Who would have predicted going into this season, forty-two-year-old Tom Brady? Who would have predicted that this guy, who seems to defy age, whatever that means, would be winning yeah. Offensive Player of the Month, throwing all these touchdowns, all these yeah. yards, especially given the fact that he had a average season at best last year? Yeah. So, he definitely has not been the weak link in that chain for sure, but we still have over half a season left to play. So who knows? You yeah. know, right now it's it's all cookies and milk, right? It's yeah. it's awesome, but we'll see. Right now he's proven everybody wrong, and yes. you're loving it. I love it. It's great. <laughs> so one last topic here in the NFC. We mentioned this earlier, and it's the NFC East, and this division has just been a complete dumpster fire all season long and one thing that i absolutely hate about the nfl playoffs is this whole concept of division winners automatically getting a playoff berth and hosting a first round game they host a wild card team yes and my eyes it's if you're roger goodell you would think, right? You would think you would want the playoffs to be as captivating as possible. You want to sell advertising revenue and television spots. And I mean, people are going to watch football regardless, but you want the best teams in the league. You don't want to be sitting watching the Eagles or the Cowboys hosting a first round game against like the, the Cardinals. Cardinals or the Rams or the Rams. Or the, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or the Saints. The Saints. That could yeah. be. Could be yeah. yeah. So I think. I've always had a problem. I've been a huge football fan. I've always been a huge football fan. If I had one thing to argue that I hate, that I absolutely detest about football, it's this concept of automatic burst in the playoffs. You get a playoff spot because you won a shitty division. For the longest time, this was our thought process about the NFC West, right? Rewind 10 years ago or so, back before the NFC West was good, and you'd have the Cardinals getting in the playoffs at 8-8. Eight and eight, Or you'd have the Seahawks getting in at 7-9 and nine even some meters. And we're like, this is ridiculous. Nobody wants that. That's not captivating football. You want the best teams with the best records. You know what? If four teams come out of the NFC West and all four teams make the playoffs, fucking good. Good. They deserve to be in the playoffs if they have the best record. So as far as the divisions go... I understand divisions, right? It drives rivalries, it drives ratings, keeps things interesting as far as divisions go, right? It keeps people captivated and 
you know, you don't have to be this 16 and 0 team to win your division and make the playoffs. So I get that. And more often than not, the team that wins their division is good enough to host a playoff game more often than not. But in an instance like this, and this reminds me of Seattle, I don't know, 10 years ago, however long it was when Seattle was seven and nine, they won the NFC West hosted the saints and actually beat the saints. That was the beast mode run game with Marshawn Lynch, which was pretty miraculous. The way that I see it is if you don't have a winning record, I'll even cut them a break. If you can go 500 and you're the winner of your division, fucking fine. Okay. Right. Like I don't, I'm not thrilled about it, but okay. But if you don't have a winning record, if all the teams in your division have a losing record at the end of the season in your division, if there's teams that are better than you that are outside of the wild card picture, guess what, motherfucker? The top wild card team is now taking your spot as a home team for the playoffs, and the next two teams below them will be the two wild card teams that will go to the other two division winners that don't have the buys. I like that. And they'll play each other. Yeah, I like Plain that. Plain and simple. Yep. I think that's how it should be. You do not get rewarded for having a terrible season. If you're under 500, that's a bad season. You do not get rewarded by going to the playoffs and getting extra revenue and taking a spot away from a team that there could be a team that's potentially 10 and six, nine and seven. Yeah. That is not going to the playoffs because the six, nine and one Eagles are going to the playoffs. Like no. And people don't want to see that other than the Eagles fans, which fuck them because Philly fans are the worst. Yes. Nobody wants to see that shit. I don't want to see whatever team go on the road to play a losing team in the first round. That's my solution. It'll never happen because it's all about money. And right now the NFL is making plenty of it, so they don't need my fucking opinion, but I hate it. I hate the idea of a losing team getting a buy and getting into the playoffs. It pisses me off. Yeah. You and I are really on the same page there. So We'll transition out of football. We'll have more football. The NFL will have a wrap-up of this week's games on next week's show for you all. But we do want to transition to the kids. We want to talk about the kids. We want to talk about some college football. (laughs) So the Big Ten returned to action this week. And I would say that there was one noteworthy game that I want to highlight for you on this week's show. And it is, of course, the upset. The Indiana Hoosiers winning over the 8th-ranked Penn State Nittany Lions. It was a great basketball game. The Hoosiers hit a three late in the game. To Oh, wait. wait you said Indiana football beat in- Penn State? Yeah, right. Indiana football. Who knew? This is another one of those very interesting, dramatic games in a season where it seems like anything can happen in college football this year, right? Penn State has an opportunity late in the game to just fall down at the one yard line and just take a bunch of knees and they win the football game. But this guy, Devin Ford, like tiptoes into the end zone. Like he forgot that he wasn't (laughs) supposed to score after the fact. Oh no, I can't believe I scored. Oh no. (laughs) And, And even Penn state's coach after the game is saying, these are scenarios that we've practiced and we've talked through. (laughs) Like we should know this is all about managing the game. Right. And so, Penn State doesn't do that. They get in the end zone. They make it an eight-point game with 142 remaining. The Hoosiers of Indiana drive the length of the field, and with 22 seconds left in the game, they quarterback, sneak it up for a touchdown, 
Michael Penix Jr., quarterback dropped the middle for the two-point conversion, and we're going to overtime. Penn State got the ball to start the overtime, and Penn State scored a touchdown. So they're up seven. The ball is going back to Indiana. Indiana needs at least seven to continue the overtime. So they get their seven-point lead. Indiana Hoosiers, they get a nice touch pass in the corner of the end zone. They score their touchdown. A PAT gives it a second overtime. Indiana says, nah, fuck it. We're going to win it right here. I love My, it. I love, I love it. it. Go big or go home, dude. Michael Penix Jr., he makes his scramble. Same sort of quarterback draw. He goes to his left. He dives full extension for the pylon. Is he out? Is he in? Is he out? Is he in? The officials are looking at each other. Everyone doesn't know what's going on. They call it a successful try on the field. The call stands after inconclusive replay is unable to overturn the call on the field. I've got an opinion on that call. (laughs) And this is Indiana's first win over an AP Associated Press top 10 team in 33 years. Crazy. Nuts. Crazy. Pandemonium. It really adds to this concept of unpredictability, like I just said, of this football season. There's been so many upsets this year, right? Teams are scoring in bunches like they have all season long, but it's these unpredictable kinds of upsets that I really think adds to that flair of college sports in general. We see this a lot in college basketball too, right? These unranked teams are going in and knocking off Duke or going into a hostile environment on the road and winning games. And I think that's what makes the college game so exciting. But first win over an AP top 10 team in 33 years. That's pretty crazy. I do want to jump in on the play, the two-point conversion for Indiana to win the game. In real time, watching it live before all the replays and everything and them slowing it down, it looks like a successful two-point conversion as he's pretty much diving to the pylon, staying up, staying out of bounds, reaching out, full extension. In real time, the pylon goes down. It looks like he reaches out, touches the pylon, and boom, touchdown, right? But... On the replay, and it's so close, and that's the reason why they called it good was because the call on the field was it was a good two-point conversion attempt. If they would have said on the field, nope, he was down before the ball touched the pylon, then they wouldn't have been able to reverse it either way. So the call on the field was crucial, and it wasn't going to get overturned. But, But I do believe if you go back and you watch that two-point conversion, again, Indiana-Penn State, When he reaches the ball out, I do think that the ball touches the ground, which is also right, it's pretty much the out-of-bounds line, like a centimeter right before it touches the pylon. But again, it's so close that you cannot conclusively say that the ball is down, that he didn't touch the pylon first. So really crazy call. Ballsy decision by Indiana. I love it. You're a huge underdog in this game. Do not give Penn State more opportunity. Do not wake up the sleeping giant, right? Like Penn State had kind of played sluggish the entire game. And albeit the Big Ten had just come back, right? Like this is the first game for both these teams this year. So they're rusty, right? So don't give Penn State chances to get in form, right? Like this is our chance to take them out now. And they did. Really unfortunate for Penn State because this is a team that was really the only team that experts said that could beat or contend in the Big Ten with Ohio State, who I believe they play this week, right? I think it's Penn State, Ohio State in Happy Valley. Now, 
it's not going to be as impactful because they're not going to have 110,000 fans in the stadium. But it'll be interesting to see how Penn State bounces back. Some people were saying, oh, they were overlooking Indiana and looking at Ohio State, which happens all the time in college sports, right? Like you look at the schedule and you overlook who you're playing. Then teams sneak up and they beat you because you're not prepared. So very exciting game. The show has been a little long here. We've had a lot to say in the past two weeks. I want to make sure that you guys are entertained. Pac-12 is going to be starting up not this weekend, but next. So all five of the Power Five conferences will be back in action. We'll have more coverage as that goes along. We did want to move into our final topic before the unknown. Everybody's favorite topic, Sheffield United. Kanan, what have we missed in the last two weeks from Sheffield United? Quite a lot. And so we'll try to get you caught up here. We'll try to keep this as brief as possible. We'll try not to bog you down with too much soccer. But the first of the two games we've missed was Fulham. And the Fulham game, I think Corbin and I both circled on the schedule as a, uh, aha, like this is an opportunity for Sheffield to kind of get off the schneid, if you will, and get into the result column, or if not the win column, we were expecting wins. <laughs> we were expecting wins, but Sheffield had some good opportunities to score in close to goal. They just couldn't manage to put the ball in the back of the net. Fulham actually had a penalty kick opportunity in the 57th minute, a ball that glanced off of one of our defender's arms as he was swinging his arms wildly in the air for some reason. And Mitrovic from Fulham steps to the penalty spot and dumps the ball over the top of the net. He just completely misses. And so here we are. We went from doomsday, right? We went from, oh no, here we go again. And now all of a sudden, Sheffield have an opportunity. This is a huge momentum shift. This is an opportunity for Sheffield to get going and try to score. No. From Fulham, Adam Lookman scored a screamer of a goal in the 77th minute, and it's back to, oh no, here we go again. We've conceded late again, and shit, like, this is not good, right? Yeah, we're down 1-0 with time winding down. Yeah, a position that we've been in pretty much every game this year. And so Billy Sharp for Sheffield comes on in the 81st minute. Billy Sharp, the skipper to save the day. Sheffield's best player of the day from Fulham, Alexandra Mitrovic, concedes a penalty in the 85th minute. So this guy just had an absolute nightmare of a game. He misses from the penalty spot, and then he concedes shortly thereafter. I'm sorry, he uh, concedes a penalty shortly thereafter. And Sharp goes to the penalty spot. Bang, he puts it in the back of the net. 1-1, the final score. Corbin, I know that you weren't up watching this game live. I know you watched this game back. Very easily a game Sheffield could have lost. I don't think necessarily either one of us are happy with the draw. I think we're happy that we have at least a point now. But definitely a game I think that both of us were looking at like, damn, we're lucky we got a result there. Yes, without a doubt. Definitely a game that if we would have played that game 100 more times, we would have lost 99. The opportunities that Fulham missed in that game were huge opportunities. And given how we should have lost that game, I will gladly take the draw and the one point. Again, if you win, you get three points in the Premier League. If you draw, you get one. And obviously, if you lose, you get zero. So... Points matter. I'll take one point over zero points and a loss. Fulham is definitely a team that we should be 
getting wins against. They just got promoted from the Championship League, the league that's one tier below the Premier League this season. Fulham definitely missed chances, and they should have won that game. So the fact that we got a point and a draw out of it, I will take that. I'm not happy with the result, but it could have been worse. So I'll take the draw. Danik, your thoughts? Yeah, 100%. It was a game that it was kind of like we're hanging on for dear life, it felt like at times in that game. Sheffield is kind of crazy to watch because they're explosive in transition. Like, they can just sit back and sit back. They're like a snake. You just never know when they're going to strike. And they're totally comfortable with you having the ball 60, 65, 70% of the game. They don't care. They're just going to sit back. They're going to maintain their shape. And when you least expect it, boom, they're going to strike you. Boom, right on the counterattack. And this was kind of a game against Fulham. Very much the same. 65%, 70% possession. And you're just kind of like butt clenching the whole game. Like, oh, shit. Like on the edge of your seat, kind of like a roller coaster. And finally, you know, Billy Sharp scores that penalty in the 85th minute. And it's like, okay, like <laughs> we can fucking relax, right? So, yeah, you, you got to be happy with the results. Not necessarily happy, but it's a point. It's more than Satisfied. we can say. Yeah. Given everything, giving everything that could have happened, I'll take it. <laughs> So then we go to Anfield in our most recent game, and this is our matchup against defending champion Liverpool. And for people who aren't as familiar with the Premier League, we'll give you some context. Liverpool has gone 62 consecutive games without losing at home. They've gone 62 consecutive matches since 2017 without losing at Anfield, which is fucking crazy. Yeah. Every Premier League season, you play 19 home games. So yeah, over three years of not losing at home, which is just mind-boggling. Against really good teams. Against teams yeah. like oh. Manchester City that are very good. Many soccer fans or football fans out there will definitely tell you that the Premier League is the best league in the world as far as football talent. So... They're playing the best of the best out there. Right. So the history is definitely going against Sheffield going into the game. I think that's for sure. I think to Sheffield's credit, they did come out hot out of the gates. They're on the front foot. They were attacking. They're being aggressive. And lo and fucking behold, McBurney of Sheffield gets fouled on the edge of the box in the 13th minute by Firmino of Liverpool. And for people that aren't familiar with the rules of soccer, if your foot is on the line of the penalty box, that's considered in the box. And wouldn't you fucking know it, Liverpool concede a penalty to Sheffield in the 13th minute. Video-assisted referee confirms the penalty. So, Sander Berga of Sheffield United steps up to the spot. Our best player. Sander Berga is the best player on our team. Yes, without question. Boom, he buries his penalty And just like that, wouldn't you fucking know it, the boys from Sheffield have a lead for the first fucking time of the year in Anfield against Liverpool. And I told Corbin this during the game. We were watching the game together. And I said, look what happens when Sheffield has a lead. Because it wasn't just they got their lead and they sat back with it. They continued to press and they continued to be aggressive. And they continued to push numbers forward. They even had opportunities in that first half to make it 2-0. They very easily could have made it 2-0. But, again, like so many times this year, Sheffield unable to put those opportunities away 
And when you can't bury your opportunities against a team like Liverpool, who has quality players who went out and spent a lot of money to get very, very, very good players. Some people might say the best players in the world. When you're not putting away your chances, the sleeping giant is eventually going to wake up and he's going to smack the shit out of you. And that's exactly what happened to Sheffield. Liverpool gets the equalizer right before halftime. They make it 1-1. But even at 1-1 going into the half, I was feeling decent about it. I mean, we were playing Liverpool. Corbin, I know going into the game, you kind of predicted a Sheffield United win. And honestly, through 45 minutes of the game, I wouldn't say we were the better team. I think we had the better opportunities. And I think you and I both talked about this at halftime. Both of us thought, hey, you know, Liverpool got their punches in, but like we kind of held our own, you know, and that was encouraging to see. Unfortunately, in the second half of the game, Diago Jota of Liverpool wins a free header in the box in the 64th minute. Sheffield once again conceding off a header on a cross into the box. It feels like that's been our Achilles heel all season long. And that's the final score. Liverpool win another match at Anfield, and Sheffield will stay on one point through six games. Yeah, it's been pretty rough. I mean, if you would have told me, hey, six games into the season, Sheffield's going to have one point. They're 0-1-5. They're in the 19th position in the standings, which there's only one team below them. And they have an equal amount of points, but based on goal differential, Sheffield is in the 19th spot. Definitely not where you want to see your team at. You want to see your team out of the bottom three at all costs, or else at the end of the season, if you're still there, you get downgraded a league. But a different team against Liverpool. I was hopeful there was something about that game that I thought that our players would get up for it, they'd play well, and that they could sneak out with a victory, especially since Liverpool hadn't been playing well the previous two games. So I thought if there was any time that we were going to be able to get this team, it was you know this past week. It didn't happen. Liverpool on paper is by far the better team than Sheffield is, so it's not demoralizing that we lost. Unfortunate because we had a lead early and let it slip away. But there were some good takeaways in that game. I'm interested to see what happens tomorrow. We have a game local time, 5.30 in the morning, against Manchester City, who is another powerhouse in the Premier League. So this time the Blades will be playing at home in Sheffield. I do think a team like Sheffield really, really misses their home crowd, their fans, their supporters. This is a, a fan base in Sheffield that players all around the league and coaches and Anyone who knows football will say the same thing, that Sheffield has tremendous supporters. It's a special place to play. And that was kind of an example of that was last season. They were supposed to be one of the favorites to get relegated last year. They performed very, very well and performed better than pretty much anybody had expected them to. And I think a big credit to that was having those fans and those supporters in the crowd. And I think that not having anybody there to motivate them in moments where they need it, I think is a big problem. Yeah, and I will say this one last thing about Sheffield. Through six games of our schedule, I will say that we're playing some teams that have payrolls that are infinitely higher than ours. 
And oh, like quadruple, five times, like yeah. uh, considerably higher. And teams like Sheffield that have been seriously negatively impacted by the results of the coronavirus and not being able to sell tickets and not being able to sell stuff inside the stadium or, or whatever, or television contracts even. And so they're really hurting financially. And honestly, some of these games against these elite teams in the Premier League it would be like the Red Sox AAA affiliate in Pawtucket trying to win against the Yankees or the Dodgers. Like, maybe every once in a while, you might be lucky enough to win a game, but eventually, the quality of the opposition and the money that they've spent and invested into their team are just going to win. They're just going to win. And I'm happy to see that the team is progressing in the right direction. We're not really getting wins yet, but... I think we're improving. I think we're trending the right way. It's not like yeah. we're like bombing certain games. You know, we got a result and then we've looked okay at Liverpool at times. We looked very good at times too. But as looking ahead as in terms of a team, can they survive? And this is kind of the big topic is Sheffield United in their sophomore season, in the premier league, are they going to be able to stay above the relegation line we have to keep in mind that this is a long season. We've said this throughout every episode that we've discussed, and this is us just trying to be as optimistic as possible. But look, we've played six games. There's 32 games to play. That's a yeah. bunch of games. That's a bunch of opportunities. And think about the schedule that we've played to open this season. And I'll just cover this super quick. Game one, we played against Wolverhampton Wolves. They're currently ninth in the table. Week two, we played Aston Villa. They're third in the table. Week three, we played Leeds United. They're at sixth in the table. Week four, we played Arsenal at 11th in the table. We had a draw against Fulham, and, and they're the only team that's worse than us in the league. And then we went to Anfield and played the defending champions and lost, and they're second in the table. So of the six games that we've played, three of the games are against teams that are in the top six currently in the English Premier League. Yeah. So we've had it, a we've had a very tough go so far. It's one thing that if you're playing really well and you're losing games, okay, like that's not a good sign. But we haven't played really well. And we've lost games, but they haven't been blowouts. They've been close games. Other than the Wolverhampton game, all the games that we've lost have been by one goal. Yeah. So it's not like we're getting blown out, you know, four nil and just getting embarrassed. So I'm optimistic. Like Koenig said, 32 more games. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, and you know we're going to have situations here in the later parts of the season where we're playing, instead of teams in the top half of the table, we're playing teams in the bottom half of the table that are around our payroll, around our quality, around much more even matchups. And I think those are the opportunities where you start to see the wins, where you start to see Sheffield's quality, especially as our new striker gets into the system, he actually gets to play a full 90 minutes and not just 50 minutes, you know, as he gets his fitness right. So we'll see how it goes for Sheffield. A lot of games left, but that's what we got for you this week. All right. It is time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. The unknown. The unknown. The unknown. This week... It is Koenig's turn to take control of the unknown. Only Koenig knows what he has in front of him there. Koenig, do you want to lead us into what you have for us today? Yes. So this is our Halloween episode. If all goes well, we're recording this the night before Halloween, but I'm going to 
try my best to get this shit out for you guys on Halloween. So we have a Halloween-inspired segment of the unknown this week. Oh shit. So what I have ahead of me, and I have to pull up my phone for this because I don't have a very good memory. I'm getting old over here. I have ten would-you-rather Halloween-inspired questions. And the rules of the game are very simple. I'm going to ask Corbin the ten Halloween questions, and he has to say, would you rather A or B? Very easy. I've listed on my phone, and I'm going to hold it up here so Cobra knows I'm not bullshitting. (laughs) I've listed all of the options that I think Corbin is going to select. See how well I think I know this guy. So... 10 questions. If I can get what he guesses correct on six of them, I say that I win. If I, if I can get over half of these right, then I say that I win. If it's five each, then we push. And if I can only get four of these correct, then I will take a punishment. I think that you know me well enough that I think five doesn't need to be the push. I think five needs to be... You lose on five. So six or better, you win. Five or less, I win. So no push this week. It's either a winner nope. or a loser. You got it. Okay, I'm good with that. All right, I'm ready. All right, would you rather, question number one, would you rather walk through an abandoned graveyard in the middle of the night or spend the night in a haunted house? Oh, walk to an abandoned graveyard all day. Reason being... Yeah, graveyards are scary as shit, but you just told me the house was haunted. If I know the house is haunted and there's spirits and shit and God knows what in there, fuck that. I don't want any part of that. I will walk through the abandoned graveyard. All right, we'll see how you do here after we do all 10 of these. Which Halloween tune would you prefer to boogie to? The Monster Mash (laughs) or Thriller? I see. I don't think the Monster Mash is a. I just think it's a funny, dopey kind of song. You can't really dance to it, so for sure, Thriller as far as Boogie too. Okay. I know like five percent of the Thriller dance. (laughs) Yeah, I just know that the the claws and (laughs) the first ten seconds I know of the Thriller dance. Yeah. All right. Would you rather question number three? Would you rather go trick or treating with kids or hand out candy to trick or treaters? Now, when I go trick or treating with kids, am I just like I'm just like escorting them? Like I'm just like, like I'm their chaperone. Well, you can or go I, like in I, a, yeah, you can go. I, I have to I have to go ask for candy. You can make make it a bit your whatever adventure you want it to be, either or. Okay. okay well, I in this scenario, I would never go trick or treat at my age. Like, come on. <laughs> That's scary. Like if it was, if I had like kids or cousins or whoever that were, you know, the proper age to trick or treat, and they asked me to go with them, hundred percent that. I hate having to just linger around the front door for trick or treaters to come. Not that like I'm a Scrooge, but like I'm kind of a Scrooge, right? Like (laughs) I would much rather just put out a big giant bowl of candy and hope that the kids were good enough kids to just take a piece or two each. But um. Yeah, because then my whole night is just tied up with me having to just be anchored in the living room and wait for kids to come and awkwardly be like, oh, hey, kids, Uh, it's nice (laughs) to see you when it really isn't. (laughs) All right. Question number four. Would you rather get a limited quantity of your favorite candy or unlimited quantity of everything else but none of your favorites? 
Mm. Now, so none of my favorite or none of my favorites? None of your favorites. You just get mediocre candy. You get all of the oh. shit that you're just like, nah, it's fine, I'll eat it. But it's like, you're not getting Kit Kats, right? Oh, the limited for sure. I'm not about to just get a bunch of like dog shit, like juji fruit or whatever. The, you know, <laughs> like the, really, the really shitty off-brand candy, like no way. Okay, question number five. If you were being pursued by a Halloween villain, would you rather be pursued by Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger? Probably, well, Freddy Krueger haunts your dreams, right? Like he gets you in your dreams, doesn't he? I don't know. Because technically you could be pursued in your dreams by a Halloween villain. I didn't say that. No, but I'm, but I, that's like Freddy Krueger's thing, though, is that he like goes into your dreams and he like kills you in your dreams and he kills you in real like him killing you in your dreams kills you in real life. I think. Perhaps. Um, I mean, oh, Jesus. Um, at least with Michael Myers, he just walks, so you know I can maybe try to outpace him. <laughs> but the, the problem with michael myers is that fucker just doesn't die right like yeah. you could unload like pretty much anything into that guy run him over burn him stab him electrocute him and he's still gonna come after your ass uh, i think maybe i could bribe freddy krueger with like a 50 or like a you know a, like a snickers or something <laughs> no no like a 50 dollar bill like hey dude here's 50 bucks don't kill me <laughs> <laughs> freddy krueger could be bargained with so i'm gonna go with the freddy krueger all right question number six for your costume of the year would you rather wear an itchy wig all night or wear a hot mask all night hot mask for sure okay itchy wig that would bother me more than just being like hot and sweaty for sure okay question number seven would you rather be trapped in a house with a Halloween villain if you were blind or if you were deaf? Well, so if I'm blind, I can hear and I know that they're in the house with me. Yes, but you don't know where they are. Oh, I'd rather be deaf for sure. 100%. Okay. Yeah, I, I need... I can't see shit. I don't care if I can hear. I'm fucked. Like, <laughs> I can hear them and think, okay, I know they're in that general direction, but I don't know exactly where they're at. If I, at least if I have my sight, I could see. Even if I can't hear, I can fucking see, right? I feel like for me, just being able to hear things would just freak me the fuck out. But that's just me. Question number eight. Would you rather design and create your own haunted house or go to a haunted house that someone else created? Go to a haunted house someone else created. Designing, that just sounds like a lot of work. Fuck that. Like, I got, <laughs> I, I mean, I like Halloween, but I don't like Halloween that much, right? Like, I'm not, like, fanatical about it. For sure, I'd like, I mean, fuck, dude, let somebody else get, put shit all in their house and have to, because not only do you have to put that up, you have to take that shit back down. And that takes equal amount of time to take that shit back down. Then you got to store it or throw it away. Like, nah, fuck that. Like, that's just too much work. Okay, fair enough. Question number nine. Would you rather have a really cool solo costume or a really cool costume as part of a group? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit self... I like to get attention sometimes. So I'd probably have to say the solo costume. Even if it was ridiculous and people were making fun of me, like I could take that humiliation, you know? So I'd take the solo costume. Okay. 
And finally, question number 10, which Halloween activity, I guess this is like fall activities more than just Halloween, but which Halloween activity would you rather participate in, bobbing for apples or carving a pumpkin? Carving a pumpkin for sure. I never understood the bobbing for apples thing. Hey, just semi-drown yourself and stick your head in this bucket of water and start pull an <laughs> apple out. Like apples are fine. It's definitely not one of my favorite fruits. For sure. I mean, carving a pumpkin, like whatever, and carve that shit. And yeah, you might get some goo and stuff on your hands, but yeah, better than like waterboarding yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we're gonna go back through and we're gonna just see how well I did. So the first question, walk through a graveyard or spend the night in a haunted house. Corbin said, uh, walk through the graveyard, and I agreed. I'm on the board with one point so far. Okay. Question number two said, would you prefer to dance to the Monster Mash or Thriller? Corbin said Thriller. I actually went with Monster Mash here. Oh. I thought you were going to... The Monster Mash, you you can't really dance to that song, though. It's just like, it was a Monster Mash, the Monster Mash, it was a great Mash. Like, it's, it's, there's no, like, that's a song where you just stand around and you're like, oh, this is a funny song. Like, yeah. So the third question, would you rather go trick-or-treating with kids, maybe your eventual kids or, or like cousins or whatever, or would you rather hand out candy to trick-or-treaters? For whatever reason, I thought you would be, like, so pissed off about being around like little kids <laughs> so, <laughs> so i said hand out candy so at least you could try to like you know scare kids you said go trick-or-treating yes uh so i i hate handing out candy because yeah. it's it's just like you know kids are gonna come and it's like well i can't like go to the bathroom or like step <laughs> into the other room for too long like you gotta be like out of tension i hate that yeah all right so i only have one point through three questions this is not looking good Good, I like that. Would you rather get limited quantity of your favorite candy or unlimited quantity of meh or merpish candy? I was right on the money here. I figured you'd want to select your limited favorites. I feel like everybody would give that answer, though. Like, let's get real. Yeah, that's probably true. Although, I guess it, it just kind of <laughs> depends on like how much of a candy junkie you are. That question was kind of a layup for you, but I'll allow it. Fair enough. So that's two points. If you were being pursued by a Halloween villain, would you rather be pursued by Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger? And I believe you said Michael Myers for this no, one. No, Freddy Krueger, because oh. I can pay him off with money. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said Freddy Krueger. I said Michael Myers. Oh. So I was wrong. So I still am stuck on two points. For your costume, would you rather wear an itchy wig or a hot mask? You said mask. I said wig. Ooh, so not I'm, looking good. Yeah. Two for four. I'm or, still only two on six, two sorry. points. Two for six. Yeah. Would you rather be trapped in a house with a villain if you were blind or deaf? And you said deaf. Deaf. And I agreed, deaf for sure. That's three points for me. Mm -hmm. Would you rather create and design a haunted house or go to a haunted house that someone else has created? You said go to a haunted house. I agreed. I'd go to someone else's haunted house. That's four? Yes, you need these next two to win. Oh, geez. So I said, would you rather have a really cool solo costume or a really cool group costume? And I knew that you kind of like to be the uh, the attention getter, so I went with the <laughs> I went with the a solo. solo. Yep. So we're tied uh, up. Uh, uh, fuck. Or not, not, not exactly tied up. I've got five points. Yeah, you need one to win. I need one to win. Oh, boy. 
said, which Halloween activity would you rather participate in? Pumpkin carving or bobbing for apples? And you said carving a pumpkin. Yes. Oh, you totally said I was going to bob for apples. <laughs> did you? He did. He's going to he's going to the cabinet. Oh, man. So that was actually really, really close on that one. That was right on the threshold. Woo. He's got the Jameson. He's putting the headset back on. Oh, and back to the cupboard. This is like a like a Halloween tradition. I said bobbing for apples. I don't know yeah, why. Bob, bobbing for apples is just like maybe like when I was younger, but like now it's just like that's just like too much work and it's messy. And I don't know if you've ever tried to bob for apples before. It's terrible. That shit is fucking tough. Like unless you got like a Steven Tyler mouth and you can just <laughs> you know grab anything with your mouth. Like I know you're a showman is- though, so I thought you know maybe maybe you wanted to like you know play up the crowd a little bit. I'm not sure. But that's the unknown. Corbin uh, wins. I don't know him nearly as well as I thought I did. So I've brought back my Jameson Castmates Irish Whiskey. It's been a few weeks since I've taken a shot of this. I'm not looking forward to it. So while I do my shot, I've got it poured here in my glass. Corbin, go on with our beverage review of the evening. Go on with the chlorophyll. All right. So on my end, like I said, I am drinking a... It's called Crabbies. It's an alcoholic ginger beer. It is out of Scotland. I'm actually really pumped because with the virus going on, the normal stores where I get this at were not carrying it. And I went to a different store recently and found a whole bunch of it. So I stocked up. I bought like nine cases of it. But wow. you know, what can you do? And I love this. This is a five out of five. This is wow. currently my this is currently my favorite alcoholic beverage. You're going perfect score. Of, yes, I know wow. a lot of people complain about you know ginger beer, ginger, what have you. This drink, you get a cup full of ice. You get a lemon wedge. You squeeze a little bit of lemon juice in the cup. You pour the beverage over the ice, and oh, it's just satisfying. Mm. The ginger has just the slightest ginger burn kind of on the back of your throat but it's just oh it's so satisfying and oh i highly recommend it crabby's alcoholic ginger beer all right so first perfect score of the show on my end i went with the georgetown brewing company rogers pilsner out of seattle washington of course as you can only (laughs) find up here i swear to god you can only find like local beers the other thing that sucks about local beers here in seattle market is they're all like ipas and I think IPAs taste like feet. Like I don't, I don't think they taste good at all. But this how one was. You, how do you know what? How do you know what feet taste like? Oh, that's for me to know and for you to <laughs> never find out. So I had the Pilsner, and it's in the matte silver can. It's got the black Georgetown Brewing logo, and in orange, it's got the Rogers on it. And it's just a sharp-looking can. But this review is not about the can. The people want to know how the beer tastes like i've had a few pilsners on the show a pilsner is probably my go-to beer pilsner maybe like a hefeweizen if i'm in the mood for something like a little weedier but pilsners are typically my go-to and uh no fooling this is probably the best pilsner i've ever had very good very good pilsner i'm not crazy i'm not gonna give it five out of five i'm not corbin but let's see ABV percent 4.9%. I'm going to give it a 4.9. 
out of five stars. Oh, very <laughs> good Pilsner. If you're in Seattle or if you're out of BevMo and they happen to have beers from all over the world and they happen to have Rogers Pilsner, I highly recommend it. 4.9. Oh, yes. So that is all we have for you on episode 14 of Slightly Sideways Podcast, the Halloween edition. Hope that you guys all have enjoyed the program. If you're not already, give us a follow on Twitter at Slightly Sideways. We are transitioning out of the sports world. We're entering the dark ages over the next few months. So if you have any topics, is Mike Trout the biggest let down in major league baseball history is that maybe a topic you guys want to hear about i don't know are there other controversial topics you guys want to hear about we want to know what you guys want to hear about email our show slightly sideways pod at gmail.com if you're on youtube if you're in the comment section leave a comment what do you like about the show what do you not like about the show we want to hear from you guys and engage with us engage with the community if you are on spotify give us a follow if you're liking the youtube video hit the red subscribe button hit the like on the video it really helps us out a lot we really do appreciate that you guys are tremendous we appreciate all your support send us off for the night corbin to all my sweets out there good morning and i hope you have a great day good night everyone Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker.